Let us pray. Father God, as we come before your word this morning, really considering two verses, and in these two verses, more than can be shared in any one sermon. We need your help. We need you to guide us. We need, a, you need, we need your spirit to allow us to hear truth, to allow us to sit under your word, and to really allow the word to dissect us, perform operations in our heart, help better us, help make us more into your image, rather than reflecting evil in this world. So Lord, we beseech you for your assistance as we consider and look to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> now, we begin at this moment fifth commandment and the sixth commandment today, but theologically this is called really the second table of the law. Some people actually wonder if when Moses carried down the tablets, the two tablets, if uh, the first four commandments were on one tablet, the next six were on another. And the reason for that is there is a distinctive shift in tone from the first four commandments to the final six. In that the first four commandments were grounded in God and really our worship and reverence towards God. And at a very basic level, the final six commandments are commandments that much more deal with human relationships and in our interpersonal relationships with mankind. So much so that it becomes very popular to kind of look at these commandments as, as something uh, anybody in the world can kind of fulfill. Uh, anyone, and this is like the standard by which people are, are judged as nice or not nice, and, and you know, the Santa Claus kind of gospel, uh, it, it does a lot to promote this kind of idea. Um, and yet, these six commandments, as we go through them, I want to say something very, at the very beginning, about our motives. In being called to honor these commandments, we are called to honor these commandments because we remember the slavery that our God saved us from, as we read in those first two movement uh, verses. It's not to be good for mankind's sake, but it's actually a goodness because we desire to love the God who has saved us. Now, another thing about these two commandments, one about honoring our father and mother, and another one about do not murder. And, and at times, you know, people would maybe think these two are an odd pairing. They don't really work together. And maybe I have too much material as is, but I probably should have done each one individually. But we're going to look at them both today. And I think actually in looking at them both, we can appreciate something about the similarity between them both. 
Because both of these commandments uniquely deal with the matter of human uh, of life and how we respond to life and how we uh, engage with life. For instance, the honoring of our father and mother at a, at a basic level, a basic understanding, we immediately run to um, the understanding of, of those who might give us life. And as we're going to see, it also refers to those in authority over us. And, and, and desire to preserve our lives, that our honoring this commandment is a response to the life given to us and, and how we treat it and how we respond to it. But also with murder is the, the actual response to other people created in the image of God. If you think that maybe this idea of life is, is something that can be easily discounted, all you need to do is really look at, for instance, the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, for instance, in chapter 2, verse 28, or Acts chapter 5, verse 20, or Acts chapter 11, verse 18, or Acts chapter 17, verse 25, God makes clear that pre-conversion and post-conversion, that there is this sort of death-to-life response, that people basically respond in a new way and have a kind of a new life-giving, uh, a life lens to look at with joy in this world. And you want to know on the reverse, maybe how to spot the godless of, this, of the world? How to better identify evil? See how an individual then considers the life God gives. If they see the life that God gives as something that that is something we can mar or destroy or uh, snuff out. You're seeing evil. And in these two commandments, there are deep spiritual realities about the topic of life. For example, let's just look at this civically at first. We're going to look at these commandments in a variety of ways. But let's look at the fifth commandment civically. Honor your father and mother and that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Let's start by examining it with that civic lens that Calvin talked about. That is a helpful one to consider these commandments. Civically, right now in our day and age, is our government trying to take more power out of parents' hands, giving less honor and respect to parents, or is it trying to uphold the honor and dignity of current parents. Is it saying, no, no children. You're not a, you're not a child of the state. No, the, the state does not control you. Your, your parents are in control of you. And I think if we honestly looked at school boards and medical boards, the, the political landscape of America has been more and more our government, which many tyrannies have done in history past, we only need to look at uh, communist and fascist countries in, the, in history, has uh, more and more said, we, we as a school board, we don't care if you don't like your children looking at pornography. We don't care if you don't want your, parent, your children knowing about this sexuality issue that we think is the new orthodoxy. We're going to teach them because we're the authority. 
or medical boards where states right now, even if two parents did not want their children to go under medical butchery and castration, there are certain states in our union that would say, we don't care what those parents say. This is life-saving care that we're doing. This is good care. And so the, the ends justify the means. We don't care about the fifth commandment. We don't think about that civically, but a large part of the problem that we experience in our society, in our day and age, as we see the crumbling of American fabric is a decay and destruction of the household authority of God. And the destruction of the household. We, our country, while it hasn't been set by many, is in large part struggling with honoring the fifth commandment. And the irony of the fifth commandment is that if you look at it, what does God say for such a nation that would, Israel being the example there, for such a nation that forgets this commandment and forgets to honor this commandment. It says that a nation like that will not exist long. That it, 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 it implicitly implies that blessing will follow a nation that upholds the family, that honors the family, and frankly, you never need to open the Bible. You just need to be a legitimate historian to understand that. If you uphold these things, a nation will be blessed, but if you say to these things civically, these don't matter. Our definition of life, which is really death, is what matters. <clears throat> then things begin to unravel. So that's just a civic way to look at this commandment. But let's be honest. The first way we are tempted to look at this commandment is to consider our biological parents. And for all of us, that means a slightly different story. For some of us, that means betrayal. That means hardship. That means people who should have been your first and foremost protectors, those who gave you life in the world, were not there to do so. For some of us, it's just really wonderful memories. Usually, you know, just a pouring out of respect for our parents. And for others, it's, it's a mixed bag. There's successes and failures. There's, there's good times and there's bad. And immediately when we start thinking this way about the commandment and how we normally consider it at first, we can build out these categories if we're not careful of were my parents or are my parents people worthy of honoring? But when we do that kind of thinking, what have we forgotten? We've forgotten that this is a divine law. And that it means that this is what God holds as good. And that God has called us to this, not this is just a human law, this is divine law. And so we need to examine, for instance, why God says this is good for us. You know, Jesus was perfect, and he still honored his parents. Jesus was perfect, and he still honored his parents. I mean, think about how many times Jesus maybe saw a flaw, a sin of his parents, and maybe sometimes they, you know, 
were really struggling and having wisdom in raising them, and he perfectly obeyed his commandment. I mean, I was struggling when I was in Tahoe with my father because I found out he has this terrible habit when, it, when uh, a what is that, spam telemarketer calls, he either gives them more information about himself. So like one time he was called about property that he owned in St. Louis. He goes, I don't own property in St. Louis. My son owns property in St. Louis. And I'm like, Dad, quiet, stop giving him information. And, uh, or, or he'll call them back. He calls them back. And I'm just, and sometimes it was like a 10 minute excursion and then calling them back and I'm sitting there and sometimes we're driving around this beautiful lake in Tahoe and I'm going, oh man, oh, this is driving me crazy but I'm trying to honor my father. Realize, when I say that I'm covered, I, I have the reality of sin in my thoughts, word and deed. Jesus honored his parents even though he was perfect. That gives us all humility. Yes. But also, this commandment is not just about our biological parents. Actually, this commandment becomes the primary template for all human authority-based relationships. So, for example, we sit here on Reformation Day, roughly 500 years after the Reformation began. And if you know anything about the history of the time period, the Roman Catholic Church upheld itself as uh, the parental authority on earth. It still upholds that. For instance, in Vatican II, it basically said, he said uh, which is fairly recent, even if you don't listen to the Pope, he's still, uh, you're still, he's still your Pope. He's still in charge of you. They actually appeal to the parental authority of verse, uh, of the fifth commandment. And, and there are aspects where this, again, is a biblical idea. For instance, uh, Leviticus 19.32. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of the old man, that you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. This is an example of teaching to honor and respect the elderly in general. Here in America, we have a culture of what's new and what's next. You know, um, Apparently, our world really cares right now if Taylor Swift is at a football game. Because she's what's new and what's next. In 10 years, no one will care if Taylor Swift is at a football game. It'll be like somebody else being at a soccer game or something. Who cares? Whereas the scriptures state we should look at the past. We should look at those with decades of wisdom and, and really uphold their respect and dignity. That's found in this commandment. In 1 Timothy 5, 1, through two, 1 and 2, we read, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. In the church, treat people uh, as in a familial way. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Basically, we, we live in a, a church relationship, God calls us to, in a dynamic, appreciating this household dynamic. First Peter 5, verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself all with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Basically submitting to the eldership of the church. If we're struggling with that, that's a struggle in the fifth commandment. Romans 13, 1. 
Let every person be subject to governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So uh, even in gov governmental ways, we are to have a certain kind of honoring. However, this leads to the rub. The commandment is not obey in all situations your father and mother. Now, teenagers, slow down. <laughs> First off, there's a really good biblical argument that until you leave the household and leave cleave to a new household, you don't really get too much, too much reason for rebellion. But the commandment is honor your father and mother, not always to obey father and mother. Or obey even as like government examples, governmental authorities. And the reason for that is the fact that sometimes to honor an authority, to honor parents, we need to not give in. Now, we need to be careful with this. The kind of disobedience against that authority is the kind of disobedience you would be willing to clearly state in one sense in front of the congregation, in front of the elders, in front of the church. This is not a don't eat the ice cream and you decide, I don't need to obey. Pastor Kevin told me I don't need to obey. I'm going to go eat the ice cream. Um, that's not what we're saying here. But, but remember, these commandments have their value and meaning in God. And so our respect and honor to these commandments need to always be centered upon God. We need to be centered, frankly, on the first commandment. Because we can, if we commit ourselves to the first commandment, we're not going to break any of the others. So, let me give you two separate examples that hopefully illustrate what I'm trying to get at. We were so close to missing our flight to Lake Tahoe, or the Reno. We were very close because of me. I forgot my ID in my car, and it all of a sudden, uh, Bruce Stocking was driving us, and he was driving the speed limit, and then I forgot the ID, and it added about an hour and 15 minutes to the driving, and so all of a sudden, the foot got a little more lead in it. <laughs> And I'm busy sitting there going, I, I cannot believe we're going we're gonna to miss this flight. I'm a little stressed out. As I told the stockings yesterday, my most stressful times of the vacation were with them. Um, <laughs> both to and from the airport, we have stories. <laughs> uh, but yes. But I'm busy going, hey, my parents got a hotel. They really wanted to set aside this week for just my family. And what am I going to do? I, I, I'm not a wealthy man. Uh, Joel Osteen had to share any of his ministry money with me. And, and I'm busy going, honoring my parents might be, I don't know, like am I going to have to shell out the kind of money I would need to make up for the fact that I missed this flight? Fortunately, that didn't happen. We got there, God was good. God delayed the flight enough so, so that we could make it. He was good. Let me tell you another conundrum. When I moved from St. Louis to Reno, 
My parents believed that my, my faith, what, my lead in the Roman Catholic Church had been to uh, the influence of my brother, not an actual spirit change, but the undue influence of my brother. And they asked me, and honestly, it's, it's that silent thing. In the last couple of years, it's kind of died down finally. But my parents are not priests or Roman Catholics. They are Roman Catholics. Nothing grieves them more than for me not to be a Roman Catholic. And I remember my parents at times in my life have asked me to honor them by going back to Rome. Can I obey that? I can't obey that. I can't obey that because while I have hope for my parents' faith, I know what that church teaches. And it teaches that it's a mixture of our own works and grace that saves us. And, and I come to places like this with the commandments, and I just, I'm undone. And if that's the way of salvation, then God's going to send me to the hottest corner of hell because I deserve it. And the only hope I have, the only name I can stand on is Christ alone. And the only thing I, I can say on Judgment Day is, I have no idea why I'm here, but I know he, he said I could be here, I, and so I believe him, that his righteousness is enough for me. And, 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 I, and I try to love my parents in that struggle of leaving that church uh, that they wanted me to be a part of, that denomination, um, and so, but I cannot obey that. I cannot obey that because of love for God. And so that's kind of the idea here with disobedience. You know, both my wife and I, my wife has even kind of adopted parent situations and lost her mother. Um, and we've had to make decisions at times where we honor family by not obeying them. And um, we actually hope, and we have good reason to hope, the Lord's given us hope that in the case of her mother, reconciliation was found for them. And we hope to see her in heaven because of that. Because the last couple months, uh, even though there were years of struggle, uh, last couple months, there's reasons to be hopeful. So this, this is something that we have to walk through in wisdom when it comes to the Fifth Commandment. I know I need to move on, but there's something else I want to appreciate about the Fifth Commandment. If you, let's look at it as ancient context. This is one of those commandments they love to say, oh, the Israelites were stealing from the Hammurabi Code. The Hammurabi Code was written before Moses, uh, uh, well, the Lord says these words on Sinai, on the timeline of history. The Hammurabi Code said this, if a daughter or a son struck their father, they could be liable for the death penalty. And so, you know, if you go to Prince, liberal Princeton or liberal Harvard or liberal Duke, you'll, you'll, in those scholarly religious programs and institutes, they'll go, see, the Israelites were just stealing the notes of the Babylonians. This is just a development. It's nothing new. It's nothing divine. It's just a, a reiteration of the Hammurabi Code. 
Because if a Hammurabi code, a daughter or a son strikes a father, they can be put to death. You're not, most of you are not in seminaries or theology, have done deep theology studies. But I'm confident you can figure out the huge, vast difference of the Hammurabi Code and this commandment. What's the big difference? It's honor your father and your mother. And your mother. For 3,500 years of church history, or really because the law is on our hearts, Biblical faith has always understood, not that the genders are equal in everything and, and they all are, are required to do the same responsibilities and are immutable and all these things, but both are to be regarded with equal respect. And that was revolutionary in the ancient world. That was something you'll find nowhere else. Women were property. Actually, there's a fascinating historical study. Historians who don't even agree with the scriptures, they'll talk about how Christianity, the salt of the earth, to refer to Sunday school, how Christianity changed Roman culture on family and parenthood. Father and mother both upheld with dignity in a world that did not hold women with dignity. One final thing before we move on. This honoring is a lifelong honoring. Realize, for instance, 1 Timothy gives us this frightening warning. Chapter 5, verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Think of that point. It would be better to be a Chinaman in a rice paddy who will never hear the name of Jesus than to be raised in the faith, in the community of God, and not count the cost of honoring father and mother and honoring the household and the fullness of that cost for the entirety of life. And this conversation becomes an uncomfortable one to have because no parent wants this to be true of their ultimate reality. But as someone who has helped with end-of-life care for grandparents and for others, I don't say this to be sensational, but to be candid, there might be a day where those people who were initially tasked with wiping you, when you made a mess as an infant, need the same courtesy given back to them. They'll hate it, but they might need it. And it might not be that exact thing, but I think that gets us in the mental place we need to be. You need to ask yourselves as a Christian, how far are you willing to go in order to honor your loved ones in such moments? Are you prepared for that? If so, called. And then why are you prepared for that if you're so called? Is it the desire, desire to honor both God and them? 
then you're on the right track. And when you can love, when you can have this kind of honor and love and a love like this, it's no wonder God can assure us in his word that your lives will be better and longer with this sort of generational covenantal love and respect. So, honoring parents means caring for them, listening to them, and cherishing the life they gave you rather than destroying their impact on your life. Honoring parents, and, and again, some of these parents might be more spiritual kind of headship or adoptive realities. Honoring parents models love, sacrifice, and care rather than hatred and selfishness and harm. Honoring parents means maintaining and caring for family structures that God intends, not tearing apart families through evil laws and trauma. Honoring parents values uh, their wisdom and guidance while not honoring authority structures silences the wisdom of those gods have given us to learn from. And if you're wondering about all those contrasts with the fifth commandment, really all those contrasts come into the sixth commandment, the do not murder commandment. Now often I'll point out, I don't like the ESV's translation here. This is one of those times where I have to pick on a translation I actually normally use in order to give further clarity to the ESV, but the King James translated Exodus 20:13 as thou shalt not kill. And it's ever since been a favored translation of kind of pacifistic Christians. Not everybody who uses the King James, of course, would say that this is a prohibition of killing, but some have. And enough have that we need to speak to it. So let me just give an illustrative example of Scripture. Scripture makes clear that David might have killed as many as 10,000 men. 10,000 men. The, the story that every young boy loves to hear, the story of killing Goliath, is not a murder. It was a justifiable killing. It was a justifiable act. There is a difference between murder and killing. In the Hebrew here, the word for murder, the word in the Hebrew, is one only used when it's planned, when, a, when, a, when the taking of life is planned, coerced, in a way of rooted in anger, uh, usually devised with some sort of weapon of war uh, in order, uh, in a response to hate. Hamas committed murder against a great many civilians because they hated. Those were murders. That was not warfare, that was murder. And, and the messiness of this is what led theologians like Augustine to work through this topic with just war theory, just war doctrine. But understand that there is a distinguished difference. But, was there a time that David murdered? There was. There was a time where God attributes murder to David. And the reason why he attributed murder to David is because David was covering up adultery. Yeah, I have a sin will cover, one of the sins will cover next week, Lord willing. That was a murder. The Lord did forgive him. 
Genesis actually 9, 6 provides us a rationale on the prohibition of murder and why there are times where the death penalty is allowed. Whoever sheds man's, the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed, for in his image did God make man. That means that society, because it upholds life, at times should remove people from society that you don't honor life. The murderer usurps and infringes on God's sovereignty, and because human beings are created in the divine image, it's also an affront to God's majesty. We are God's workmanship. It is defacing God's glorious workmanship. And so for this reason, this passage such as Numbers 35, 31 make clear the death penalty is legitimate in the eyes of God in, for those who do not honor the sixth commandment. But here's the danger of the sixth commandment. It's probably the easiest one to convince yourself you don't have to worry about. And I say this on good authority because this is one of the commandments that the perfect pastor, being Jesus, expanded on and, and further went into on, the, on several times in his ministry to the point that it means all of us are murderers. It means all of us need to be uncomfortable with this commandment. For instance, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 21 and 22, Jesus said, You have heard it, heard that it was said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry, angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever shouts, You fool! will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew 15, 19 and 20. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Jesus makes clear the truest idea of murder, in one sense, is a heart issue of anger. And by this standard, again, we are then all murderers. The Apostolic Record follows along with this idea. For example, 1 John 3.15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Actually, one of the finest chapters I've ever read in any Reformed uh, theology book was a chapter on anger written by pastor and counselor David Paulson. And it's so good, I'm going to read the entire chapter for you this morning. It begins with a question. I want you to answer this question in your head. Do you have a serious problem with anger? Answer that. Do you have a serious problem with anger? Let me read the rest of the chapter for you. Yes. If you missed the point, let me reread it. The whole, the whole chapter. Do you have a serious problem with anger? Yes. One of the best chapters I've ever read. <laughs> He's totally grounded in the biblical understanding of, of anger and murder. Because no Christian can honestly approach the New Testament verses on anger and say, I don't want to struggle with the sin of murder. Do you find yourself continually being angry with someone? 
Scripture says, in such instances, we are struggling with the sin of murder. And if that's you this morning, that's a dangerous place to be. Because it's the father of lies, it's Satan who's called the murderer. For instance, in John chapter 8. And we're not called to reflect his image. That's not what salvation is about. Our salvation is about reflecting our life-giving Lord's image. Actually, in dealing with anger, if you're like our house, I'm going to say this for us. us. We need to start putting, uh, remember James chapter 4, verses 1 through 7 on our life refrigerator. It comes to anger. Look at, listen to what James says. He starts with his chapter with a question as well. What causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst you? Let's talk in the church. What causes quarrels and what causes fights amongst you? Is it not this, well, let's listen, that your passions are at war within you? What, James? My passions? At war within me? Don't you know what they did? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, you do not ask, you do not receive because you ask wrongly and spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, if whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. I love that James reminds us of that. But he gives more grace. We fail in anger, gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Resist that murder. Resist the anger, and he will flee from you. The James passage gets to the heart of the dilemma. And so we want to follow the pattern of the Lord, the giver of life, a pattern of the evil one. Because once passions can get involved, and I speak from personal experience as a murderer myself, we quickly can have a propensity to get carried away in our anger. We, there is a form of righteous anger in the Bible, and let's be honest, we don't have the power to sustain righteous anger all that much. If we can't admit that, then we're also violating uh, another commandment of bearing false witness about ourselves. We've all used words that have helped destroy another. Or we've all shown approval, given counsel, given ear to such words, and indifference to watching someone use words to destroy another. Even our facial expressions and mannerisms and behavior can be forms of murder. And a small community like this, we don't have the luxury of a mega church. Uh, the interpersonal relationships here, and I can say this as somebody guilty of it, will have struggles with this sin of murder at times.
just cover a few quick things before close. After getting into the uncomfortable part. The further uncomfortable parts about murder. Because there are questions that come up with murder. First, and I say this as someone who has known individuals I love who have done this, suicide is an act of murder. The resort to suicide is closing your life with an act of murder. And we should think about that very soberly in those darkest moments with those bleakest thoughts about whether or not we would ever want the last permanent thing we do in our mortal life to be the act of committing murder against self. Situational hurts are temporary. They are temporary. That's, that's the hard thing on the other side of somebody doing this. They're always temporary situational hurts. wish that people would be aware of that. But sometimes our fallen mind can get the best of us. But as we know from David, it's David was a murderer. It's not an unforgivable sin, but do not, do not go down that road mentally of considering a permanent solution to only a temporary discomfort. This too will pass. Next, looking at murder medically. There is a difference between the euthanasia or the aggressive termination of human life and the stopping of medical treatments. They are not the same in any way, which way, shape, or form. There, this is just a reality as walking alongside people uh, close to death. Most Christians, when it comes to the moment of death, most of them, not all of them, but reach a point where they would rather go than stay. You are not murdering yourself if you decide against further medical intervention. I, my brother has even listed me as his, uh, the person in charge of his medical care in extreme situations because he's confident I'd be willing to pull the plug. Not so much in his wife. Or even prescribing comfort care in the midst of that decision. Those are okay. That is different, different than actively trying to achieve that. One other question, and probably the last question we're going to deal with, the minds of some of the pews, is regarding abortion. God's word is clear. His people are his people from womb to tomb. And even after that, beyond the grave. That's the story of scripture. It's the story of the Christmas story. It's a story in Jeremiah. As Jeremiah begins with, it's a story throughout scripture, from womb to tomb. Here it is. Abortion is an act of murder. And I love to say this, I know many, probably about five, God-fearing Christian women that have, in their folly, committed this sin. All of them admitted, though, it was the sin they committed. However, I do also want to bring something up, something else up, having ministered to this reality in my lifetime. The abortionists who perform the procedure, the, the lies they tell as the woman enters and the, the procedure goes on, and after the procedure, oh, that's not human life. 
No, 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 don't worry. It's a simple medical. This is just a few, this is. That's the kind of evil murderous predators of the worst kind of our world. And if you're sitting there right now and going, why did Kevin have to get political? This isn't political. This is about the Lord, the giver of life. Trust me, I have sat both in Missouri and in Nevada and had a doctor suggest that both for Caitlin and Bridget, we needed to abort them because their life would amount to nothing. Their life would not be of value. Their life would be worthless with all medical understanding of life. And I promise you, my wife and I in that moment were going, oh, what do the halls of D.C. say about us? We were saying, what does the Lord, the giver of life, want us to do? And I did not care that the man in Missouri called me an idiot and said he wanted nothing to do with me. I did not care about the opinion of the one in Nevada either. Because God had given life to the womb. Forever how long? I didn't care that they said that both Caitlin and Bridget were going to die in the womb. Because it's not a political issue. It is a spiritual issue. It's a religious issue. It's an issue of murder. And you're going to have to be asking yourself, what do I believe about life? And do the things I believe about life, do the things I've been saying about life, do they come from the Lord of life, or do they come from the pit of hell? From the murderer and the destroyer of hell. And that's not a political issue, that's a religious issue. And you're lying to yourself with the idolatry of politics to cover yourself if you're sitting there and going, no, it's a political issue. My body, my choice. You liar. You liar. It is not your body. It's not your DNA. It wasn't my wife's choice. It wasn't my choice. It was Caitlin's DNA. It was Bridget's DNA. You liar. Stop lying to yourself. And yet... We've all murdered people. We've all murdered people. And what do we do with it? We've all failed to honor parents. What do we do with it? This is what we do. We look to the cross. We look to the cross. We look to the cross when our Lord and Savior was being in one sense murdered. Though he laid down his life, he was being murdered. And yet he still took the time on that cross to say, John... John, watch over my mother. Come like a son to her. Honor her. Give her the dignity that I call to give her. Adopt her as your own. But also, in the Gospel of Luke, there's words that we often say, and I often close the sermon with them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Do you know what's going on when Jesus says that, according to Luke? Do you know what they're doing in that moment? They're gambling over his clothing. 
They're gambling over his clothing to take it home. They're treating him as if he's already dead. They don't even have the respect to wait for the Messiah to die on the cross. They offer forgiveness. And he offers forgiveness to them. Father, forgive them. We look to the cross when we've murdered people in our hearts. You look to the cross when we fail to honor. And when we look to the cross, we see the God with the outstretched arms who delivers us from all kinds of slavery and sin, from murder to honoring to all of them, to the all both tables of the law. And there we find our peace, we find our forgiveness, and we find why we want to be people who uphold life in our culture. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we have been found wanting and guilty of these laws. We at times hate authority, and we often murder individuals in word of thought and deed. And yet your forgiveness cries out to us from the cross. Your perfect, in your perfect obedience, we receive the reward of your suffering even though we did not deserve it. So help us to greater obedience to you and your word. Even when the world, even when the authorities say, don't believe that, disagree with that, let us first cleave to you, Lord, above all else. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let us take a moment, quietly and privately, to confess our sins before the Lord.